Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Monday, February 12th, 2024. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Netanyahu doubles down on plans to attack Rafah. So Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday doubled down on his vow to attack the southern Gaza Strip city of Rafah, despite growing criticism of the plan. So it's estimated that 1.5 million Palestinians are packed into Rafah, which has a pre-war population of 275,000. So think about that. 275,000 population, now there's 1.5 million people sheltering there, and most of the people that are sheltering in the city are living on tents in the street, and many have been displaced multiple times since Israel unleashed its onslaught. On Friday, Netanyahu ordered the military to draw up an evacuation plan for Rafah, but it's unclear where the Palestinians sheltering there will go. A few hours after Netanyahu said that he ordered the plan, Israeli airstrikes hit residential buildings in Rafah, killing 28. Heavy Israeli airstrikes were also reported in Rafah late Sunday into Monday morning. Um, So I saw this uh, not too long before I started recording that it looked like Israel was really hitting Rafah really hard, uh, at least with airstrikes. And according to, you know, the preliminary reports from Al Jazeera, at least 50 people have been killed so far. Aid groups are warning that a full-scale Israeli assault on Rafah would be a bloodbath due to the concentration of Palestinians. Egypt, which borders Rafah, is reportedly threatening to scrap its 1979 peace treaty with Israel if it attacks the city. And, of course, Egypt strongly opposes anything that could lead to an influx of Palestinian refugees entering its territory. We know where Netanyahu really wants to them to go is into Egypt, but uh, Egypt is not going to let that happen. Um, Responding to the criticism, Netanyahu claimed to ABC News that he had no choice. Netanyahu said, quote, those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying lose the war, keep Hamas there, end quote. The Israeli leader suggested that Palestinians in Rafah could go to areas to the north that have been cleared by the Israeli military, though throughout the past few months, Israel has regularly attacked so-called safe zones. So, you know, if you're the Palestinians in Rafah, another evacuation, you know, uh, it's going to be tough for them to trust the Israeli military and any, you know, movement. Um, so, Also on Sunday, President Biden spoke with Netanyahu and said that the U.S. would support an attack on Rafah if Israel had a plan to evacuate civilians. So the Biden administration has paid lip service to this idea. You know, there's all these reports saying that, oh, Biden's getting frustrated with the Israelis. The U.S. is warning them, don't do this without, you know, unless you take account for for the civilians. But we saw this all before when Israel was planning its attack on Khan Yunus, um, you know, And we saw how brutal that was. And, you know, none of the criticism or concern means anything because the U.S. continues to provide Israel with unconditional military aid, despite the massive civilian casualty rate. And the latest number from Gaza's health ministry puts the death toll in the Strip since October 7th at 28,176, and that includes around 12,000 
children. All right, so the next one here, the U.S. admits to missteps in handling Gaza but will not alter policy. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone. He wrote this up over the weekend. It says a top U.S. official admitted that the White House had made some missteps in how it handled the Israeli slaughter in Gaza. But they're not saying they're going to change anything. And these comments came from John Finer, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor, and he made these comments to Arab American leaders in Michigan. So this is part of the damage control. In Michigan, there's a lot of Arabs, and uh, they vote Democrat typically, but this year they're saying they're not going to because of Biden's support for the massacre in Gaza. So Finer, I guess, went over there to try to, you know, you know, talk, you know, you know, I guess pitch Biden to them. And this is something he said, uh, well, the actual quote, I'll read it. He said, quote, we are very well aware that we have missteps in the course of responding to this crisis since October 7th, end quote. Um, And they didn't say what those missteps were, you know, these reports on this meeting. And again, no indication that the U.S. is going to alter the policy. All right, so the next one here, House bill to downgrade U.S.-South Africa ties over genocide suit. This is another one from Kyle, published at the Libertarian Institute. And a new bill proposed by two members of the House would require the White House to review and potentially downgrade the U.S. relationship with South Africa. The legislation was proposed in response to South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. Honestly, I'm surprised that I haven't seen more I'm sure there's stuff going on behind the scenes, but more public U.S. pressure on South Africa over this case. Um, So this was introduced by Representatives John James, a Democrat, and Jared Moskowitz, another Democrat from Florida. Um, And it is called the U.S.-South Africa Bilateral Relations Review Act. Um, So interesting that this was introduced by two Democrats. And James said in a statement, quote, South Africa has been building ties to countries and actors that undermine America's national security and threaten our way of life through its military and political cooperation with China and Russia and its support of the U.S. designated terrorist organization Hamas. To ensure America's energy security and national security, we must examine our alliances and disentangle from those who remain willing to work with our adversaries, end quote. Another thing the U.S. is not happy with South Africa about is its ties with Russia, you know, its overall membership in BRICS and all that. If you remember, I believe it was last year, maybe even in 2022, I don't remember exactly when, a Russian ship docked in South Africa and the U.S. ambassador, you know, accused South Africa of loading that ship with weapons. Um, and they also weren't happy South Africa did some military exercises with Russia and China. So this is all, uh, part of it as well. All right. So the next one here, the Houthis announced 17 killed in recent U S strikes. So the Houthis Ansar Allah, the Yemeni group held a funeral on Saturday for 17 of its members who were killed by recent U S and British airstrikes on Yemen. Yemen's Sabah news agency reported, quote, in a dignified funeral procession, the bodies of several martyrs of the nation, armed forces and security forces who were martyred in the American British aggression airstrikes were mourned, end quote. And so I got this report from the Anadolu agency, which is Turkey's uh, news agency, one of one of their news agencies. 
And they said that this announcement of the funeral marks the second time that the Houthis have reported fatalities in the U.S. and in British bombings since they started. After the first round was launched on January 12th, the Houthis said that five of its fighters were killed. Um, and that's not to say others haven't been killed. It's just that there hasn't been any kind of public announcements. So now they're saying at least 17 were killed, in, in, and these were recent uh airstrikes and and other missile strikes so i kind of lost count uh of the the number of rounds of u.s airstrikes u.s and british airstrikes in yemen just because of the fact that they're happening so frequently and i was having trouble kind of deciding what could be counted as a round of airstrikes but i think the total uh number of airstrikes number of rounds of airstrikes is around 30 right now and some have been single u.s uh, strikes, you know, not launched with the UK. And then in other cases, you had the US and Britain launch pretty heavy bombings targeting, you know, hitting dozens of targets. So this is continued. Uh, US Central Command announced new strikes on Friday and Saturday. The ones on Saturday, they claimed uh, targeted a Houthi missile, Houthi missiles and drones that were deemed a threat. And U.S. Central Command said that these strikes were launched again on Saturday between 4 and 5 p.m. They say that they hit two unmanned surface vessels, I guess those are drone boats, and three mobile anti-cruise missiles. Um, I listened to an interesting interview Scott Horton did of Nasser Arabi, who's a Yemeni journalist who lives in Sana'a, uh, the, the capital, which has been controlled by the Houthis since 2014. I didn't finish it um, I just listened really to the first 10 minutes, but basically what he was saying in the beginning was interesting was that the U.S. doesn't know what they're actually bombing, saying that they're not really doing damage to the Houthi capability. They're hitting areas that the Saudis bombed for years, you know, same military areas. And that was something that the New York Times reported when these strikes first started. Uh, RB was saying that the U.S. doesn't know where the Houthi weapons are. They can hide them. They can move them around the missiles and drones and stuff. And that was something the New York Times reported when these airstrikes first started. They quoted some U.S. officials who said that, that they weren't degrading Houthi capabilities because they didn't. their intelligence wasn't great and they didn't know, and the, and the weapons were easy to, to hide. So I thought that was interesting. So go check out uh, that interview that Scott did. And, of course, in this article, I just mentioned the fact that this is doing nothing to stop the Houthis, and that's another thing that Scott and uh, Arby uh, talked about. Um, Houthis are not backing down, and there's no sign that they will. But they're going to keep bombing them. All right, so the next one here, Iraq, says that it resumed talks with the U.S. on a future U.S. withdrawal. So the Iraqi government said on Sunday that it had resumed talks with the U.S. on the future of the U.S. military presence in Iraq amid outrage over U.S. airstrikes in the country. So this is Iraqi military spokesman Yahya Rasul. He said, quote, The Supreme Iraqi Military Commission resumed on Sunday its meetings with international coalition forces in Baghdad. Based on these meetings, a timetable will be formulated for a deliberate and gradual reduction leading to an end to the mission, end quote. The U.S. and Iraq began the talks on January 27th. I didn't realize that they were actually suspended after the January 28th drone attack that hit a secretive U.S. base in Jordan, killing three U.S. troops. Since then, the U.S. has bombed Iraq several times, targeting the Shia militias that it claims were responsible. And then the latest bombing was the airstrike, the drone strike in Baghdad that targeted a Kateb Hezbollah leader. And of course, Kateb Hezbollah and many of these Shia militias are actually part of Iraq's security forces, 
So many people in Iraq are not happy about this. And in the wake of this drone strike, over 100 members of Iraq's 329-seat parliament signed a petition demanding the expulsion of U.S. and other foreign forces. According to the new Arab, Mohsen al-Mandawi, who is Mandal Awi, who is the Speaker of Iraq's Parliament, has ordered the body's legal and defense committees to discuss the petition. And back, you know, Iraq's Parliament has voted for the U.S. to leave before, back in January 2020, after the Soleimani drone strike, but the U.S. refused to leave. And there are 2,500 U.S. troops in the country today. All right. So the next one here, outpost in Jordan where where three U.S. troops died is secretly a drone base. So this article is from The Intercept about Tower 22, this base in Jordan, right on the Syrian border, where three American troops were killed. And this says that the U.S. base in Jordan, where three American service members were killed last month, is not simply a logistics support base, as the Pentagon has described it. What the Pentagon hasn't mentioned is that Tower 22 is also a drone base conducting long-range reconnaissance on militants in neighboring Syria and Iraq for airstrikes, according to two U.S. military sources. The base also serves as a staging facility for special operations forces and a medevac helicopter home base. And while the Pentagon says Tower 22's mission was to combat the Islamic State, or ISIS, since Hamas's assault on Israel in October, the focus has turned to Iran-backed militia groups, um, and that refers to the Iraqi militia groups. So an Air an Air Force airman told The Intercept, quote, to call Tower 22 a logistics support base is complete BS, end quote. And they say that the main purpose is to operate drones to spy on insurgents in Iraq and Syria for targeting purposes. So these bases have been supporting these U.S. airstrikes because, important, to remember that since October, when the, the attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria ramped up, started and really ramped up, um, you know, these bases have come under attack before, but there was a long lull in those attacks, and they restarted in response to U.S. support for, for Israel in Gaza. So since those attacks started in October, the U.S. launched several rounds of airstrikes in eastern Syria and a few in Iraq before the the attack that killed the three U.S. troops. So this base, Tower 22, uh, appears to have been supporting those those airstrikes. And again, it's right on the Syrian border, uh, and it supports the U.S. occupation of eastern Syria and all that. Um, And an earlier story on the drone attack from the Intercept uh, basically said it has no real air defenses, um, that it lacks adequate air defenses. So, you know, it's an example of how the, the troops, U.S. troops in the region are basically sitting ducks. Um, and, you know, instead of pulling them out and withdrawing when these attacks started, Biden escalated, launching airstrikes. And as I said the whole time, it was only a matter of time before Americans were killed. And Americans were killed, and then they escalated again. All right, so the next one here, uh, Israeli drone strike kills two near key Lebanon port. So this article is from Jason Ditz. Israeli strikes against Lebanon continued over the weekend with a Saturday drone attack hitting a car near the southern port of Sudan. The attack killed at least two people and wounded two others, making it one of the deepest single drone strikes at 37 miles from the Israeli border. The intended target of the drone strike is still not totally clear, although early rumors were that it it aimed to kill Basel Salah, a top Hamas operative. Israel has not confirmed Salah was targeted, but media reports 
are that he survived the attack. Israeli reports did say a Hezbollah member was slain in the strike, though what his position was is not certain. And on Sunday, Israeli warplanes hit a series of observation posts and other sites referred to as Hezbollah infrastructure by Israeli officials. The strikes were mostly in the far south of the country near the border region. As Israel increasingly treats a war in Lebanon as a foregone conclusion, a new 130-page report was released from a number of think tanks that included many of Israel's high-ranking generals. The report, as with previous report, as with a previous report from the U.S., warned of possible Israeli unreadiness to open a second front at the northern border. Um, so we've seen that from U.S. intelligence that they don't think Israel can handle a full-blown war against Hezbollah. And Israeli reports say that as well. Um, so something to keep in mind, but the escalations, you know, the, the fire across the border continues, in, including these deep drone strikes. All right, so the next one here, pretty horrific story. Um, that's pretty pretty tough to read. Actually, there's there's two here. So the first one... Israel killed a four-year-old Palestinian girl and took 10 days to return her body. And this is from Haaretz, the Israeli uh, paper. And it says, Rukhaya Jahalin was going to celebrate her fifth birthday on February 9th, 2024. But that will never happen because about a month ago, she was shot and killed by Israeli border police troops. They fired no fewer than 32 rounds at the shared taxi in which the little girl was traveling with her mother, sisters, and brother on their way home in the West Bank. Miraculously, she was the only person killed by the insane, indiscriminate gunfire. So this article, I should mention, is written by Gideon Levy and Alex Lavak. I don't know really who Lavak is, but Gideon Levy is very outspoken critic of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the and blockade on Gaza and now the, the you know, onslaught that's happening in Gaza. Um, so this girl was sitting in the middle of the back seat of a Ford Transit when a bullet slammed into the vehicle from the back and stopped her in the chest. Her body was removed from the van by the police officers and lay on the road for about six hours before her shocked parents were allowed to approach. The officers then took the body away and only returned it to the grieving family 10 days later. This is how, in both life and in death, Israel treats both the bodies and dignity of Palestinians, even of little children who don't make it to the age of five. I mean, what possible reason could there be to keep the body for 10 days? Uh, you know, it just doesn't make any sense except for, you know, uh, to be purposely uh, cruel. All right, so the next one here, um, also really horrific, almost unbelievable. Uh, Palestinian girl found dead after being trapped under Israeli fire. This article is from Middle East Eye. And it says, Hind Rajab, a five-year-old Palestinian girl, so a five-year-old Palestinian girl was found dead. Uh, and just uh, another point about that previous article, this was in the West Bank. This was not in Gaza. This was in the West Bank. Um, and then this next one here is in Gaza. So, this five-year-old Palestinian girl was found dead Saturday, nearly two weeks after she was trapped in a car with her dead family and surrounded by Israeli forces. Two paramedics that were sent to rescue her after she called, pleading for help from inside the vehicle, which was under Israeli fire, were also found dead. So the Palestinian Red Crescent said that the ambulance was found bombed in the Tal al-Hawa area of Gaza City, 
meters away from the car in which Rajab was trapped. So basically, this little girl was able to call rescue services and pleaded for help. You could listen to the recording. It's in Arabic, but you know, you can very, you could tell it's a little girl pleading for help. It's really tough to listen to. And then according to the Palestinian Red Crescent, they sent an ambulance out and the ambulance was bombed. And the paramedics inside were killed, and then she was found dead and decomposing in the vehicle with her family. So they came under fire from Israeli forces. It's not clear if she made the call or maybe one of her family members made the call and then died and she was there by herself, but it's just horrific. Um, So, yeah, I don't know really what to say. Uh, all right, so the next one here, the U.S. rejects Putin's offer for Ukraine negotiations. So the U.S. has rejected Russian President Vladimir Putin's latest offer for negotiations to end the war in Ukraine, as the Biden administration has consistently discouraged diplomacy in the nearly two years since Russia launched its invasion. So Putin made this offer during his interview with Tucker Carlson. Putin said, quote, we are willing to negotiate. You should tell the current Ukrainian leadership to stop and come to the negotiating table, end quote. And when he said you there, he's referring to the U.S. So in response, a spokesperson for the White House's National Security Council told the New York Times that the U.S. has no reason to believe Putin is being genuine. The spokesperson said, quote, both we and President Zelensky have said numerous times that we believe this war will end through negotiations. Despite Mr. Putin's words, we have seen no actions to indicate he is interested in ending this war. If he was, he would pull back his forces and stop his ceaseless attacks on Ukraine, end quote. So the latest rejection of diplomacy with Russia comes as it is clear Ukraine has no chance of being defeated. Sorry, Ukraine has no chance of defeating Russia on the battlefield, and Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines are facing shortages of weapons and personnel. Describing the bleak situation, a Ukrainian battalion commander on the front lines told the Washington Post, quote, There is no positive outlook, absolutely none. It's going to end in a lot of death, a global failure, end quote. So the NSC spokesperson told the Times, quote, ultimately, it's up to Ukraine to decide its path on negotiations, end quote. So that old line that it's up to Ukraine to decide, Zelensky is still pushing his so-called peace formula, which as a plan to end the war, and that would include a full Russian withdrawal, Russia giving up Crimea, war crimes tribunals, and Russia paying reparations, so all non-starters as demands for talks with Russia. And Russia and Ukraine were engaged in peace talks in the early days of the invasion, but those negotiations were discouraged by the West. David Arakamia, um, who's a member of Ukraine's parliament and led the Ukrainian delegation to Istanbul, During peace talks with Russia in March 2022, he said in November that Russia only wanted a commitment of Ukrainian neutrality to end the war at the time. He said Ukraine didn't trust Russia, didn't want to sign a deal. But he also mentioned uh, another reason why Israel, uh, sorry, Ukraine didn't want to sign a deal. And he confirmed earlier reporting that said then British Prime Minister Boris Johnson told Zelensky that even if Ukraine was ready to sign a deal with Russia, Ukraine's Western backers were not. So he said, and this is confirming that reporting, again, this is Ukraine's top negotiator for the Istanbul talks in March 2022. He said, quote, when we returned from Istanbul, Boris Johnson came to Kiev and said that we would not sign anything 
with them at all, and let's just fight, end quote. So here we are nearly two years later, and how many hundreds of thousands of uh, people have been killed in this, and they still want to keep it going. No diplomacy. Nope. They want another $60 billion to fund the thing. Speaking of which, actually, no, the next story is about Pakistan. So Imran Khan's PTI wins most seats in Pakistani election. This article is from Brett Wilkins. So I don't know. I haven't been following the situation in Pakistan that closely. I know Imran Khan was just sentenced to a bunch of time in, in prison. Um, and it seems pretty uh, obviously like it's corruption. Um, I know one of the sentences was over the cipher cable that he handled. Um, and it actually turned out that that showed how the U.S. encouraged Pakistan to remove Khan. And it was some a U.S. State Department official who said it was because of his aggressive neutrality on Ukraine that they didn't like what he was doing. They called it aggressive neutrality. So he was removed um, and he's getting sentenced to prison for for all sorts of stuff. And now there was the elections this weekend and they weren't expected, you know, the crackdown on Khan's party, the PTI, uh, nobody expected them to do well in these votes. And there's all sorts of allegations about rigging. and, And, you know, I don't really know anything about that. But it turns out that Khan is still very popular, and his party won at least 93 out of the 265 uh, contested parliamentary seats. Um, so no party got a uh, majority, but they his party won um, more seats than any other party. Um, so we'll see. You know, there's a lot of violence around the election. We'll see if um, how this plays out, if there's a further crackdown on them or not. All right, so the next one here, the Senate moves closer on the $95 billion foreign military aid bill. So the Senate on Sunday took another step toward passing a $95 billion foreign military aid bill that includes funding for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. So the Senate worked through the weekend to deliberate the legislation and voted 67 to 26 in a procedural vote to move it forward. So this is another procedural vote. They, I covered this in the last show that they did this this past Thursday as well. A similar type of vote that also passed with 67 votes in favor. And the final vote to actually pass the bill or not is expected to happen sometime this week. It's unclear when that will happen as Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, uh, he continues to vow to do anything he can to delay it. Paul said that he would hold out until hell freezes over and indicated he would delay the vote by speaking about the national debt on the Senate floor. So if just one senator wants to delay this, if if all the Senate agreed to vote on this, they could vote on it very quickly, but just one senator can delay it. So that's what he is doing. Uh, Rand Paul said, quote, I love to talk. That's one of my favorite things to do. Yes, and I slept all day yesterday waiting for this. I'm going to take Adderall. No, I'm just kidding, end quote. So that's what Rand Paul said about his plans to delay it. According to NBC News, Paul estimated on Sunday that a final vote would likely be held on Tuesday or Wednesday after he exhausts his ability to delay it. Um, so the 67 votes for these procedural things, that's giving that's considered kind of a preview of the final vote. So it is expected to ultimately pass once brought to that final vote. About 17 Republicans are voting in favor of it. And so this is $95 billion, $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $4.8 billion for Taiwan and other countries in the region. And um, 
Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, he thinks it's going to pass. He's a big proponent of this thing. Um, so we'll see what happens. And then the question is if it's going to pass the House or even be brought to a vote in the House. We'll see. And this is $95 billion, and they stripped out all the border provisions from the $118 billion. So if Congress passes this and Biden signs it into law and the Republicans don't get anything on, on the border, I think, you know, they're going to look pretty dumb, I think. So I'm sure that they're going to try to get uh, some border stuff. I, I don't really know. We'll see how it all plays out. Uh, but the last one here, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, is taken to the hospital again. So this article is from ABC, and it says that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was taken back to the hospital on Sunday afternoon, this time for symptoms suggesting an emergent bladder issue. Uh, and the Pentagon announced this on Sunday. So this time they are telling uh, the public about it and telling the president about it because when he was hospitalized last time, apparently Biden was not informed. And that was over complications due to uh, surgery he had. Uh, prostate cancer surgery that he had. So I'm not sure if this is related or, or not. I'm, I'm sure it probably is, but we'll see uh, how long he's out. And the his role has been transferred to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks. So that is it for the news for today. That was a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, go check out our viewpoints. One from Jonathan Cook. CNN's Israel bias laid bare, but CNN is the norm, not the exception. One from James Carden, Think Tank Land, Foreign Influence in U.S. Politics. One from Anatole Levin, Zelushny firing not even a Band-Aid as Ukraine strategy bleeds out. One from Norman Solomon, Full Speed Ahead on the Global Titanic. And one from Andrew Ervolino, the Putin supporter slur has jumped the shark. So please go check all that out. Uh... If you watched the Super Bowl, I hope you had a good time. I hope everybody had a good weekend. Um, I did not watch the game. I haven't watched the Super Bowl in a few years. I used to watch football pretty regularly, but I I just haven't in so long. I'm a big baseball fan, though. I'm actually a Yankee fan, which a lot of people hold against me, but they're kind of considered the evil empire of the baseball world. Um, But anyway, uh, if you want to support this show, even though I'm a Yankee fan, uh, you could do that by sharing telling your friends about antiwar.com, like, subscribe, YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, That's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.